Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. This episode is sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal and Connecticut Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored. In 2010, Jamaicans became the largest foreign-born population group in Connecticut. UConn professor Fiona Vernal, who was born in Jamaica and raised in the U.S., tells us how so many West Indians came to call Connecticut home through a 70-year-long transformation she details in her traveling exhibit, Home Away From Home, Hartford's West Indian Diaspora, that just opened at Hartford Public Library. It's a fascinating story told by a natural-born storyteller, and it's coming up on Grading the Nutmeg. I'm Walt Woodward, and today we're at the Wallace Stevens Reading Room of the Hartford Public Library with my co-host for this program, Jasmine Augusto. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, Walt. Our guest today, are you ready? <laughs> Fiona Vernal, who is here to talk about a very special traveling exhibit opening this week at Hartford Public Library, Home Away From Home, Greater Hartford West Indian Diaspora. Dr. Vernal is an associate professor of history at the University of Connecticut and my colleague, I'm proud to say, a history major at Princeton who went on to get her MA and PhD at Yale. Professor Vernal is also one of those academic historians with a strong commitment to public history. To that end, she's an active member and vice president of the board of directors of the Connecticut Historical Society and an oral historian who assists people and communities in speaking their own histories. She's consulted on and or produced many museum exhibits, including the exhibit that we're going to talk about today, which is about to open here at Hartford Public Library, Home Away From Home, Greater Hartford West Indian Diaspora. Fiona, as a native of Trelawney, Jamaica, who grew up in the United States, this exhibit must have a personal as well as a scholarly significance. Absolutely. When I was growing up in Jamaica, I had no idea that the people who were leaving my community and going away for farm work, were that their stories were really important. I had no idea that all of the people who used to come and pay homage to my grandmother were just coming because they wanted to get one of the farm worker tickets. <laughs> I thought it was because my grandmother you know, just frightened everybody like she frightened us. <laughs> she was a really powerful woman who commanded respect in the community, and as much as she did so within her own right, it took me becoming a historian to realize how people were moving in and out of my small district because of the labor opportunities that the United States was providing them. You know, it wasn't until I saw this exhibit that I realized just how significant the West Indian community is in Connecticut. Well, as of the 2010 census, Jamaicans are the largest foreign-born uh, population in the state, and that demographic trend has been about seven or eight decades in the in making. The making. Yeah. Yes, so yeah. the, since the 1940s. Really impressive. So give us a brief overview, if you will, of West Indian settlement in Connecticut 
and why such a heavy concentration in Hartford County? Well, uh, during World War II, with all of the manpower shortages uh, that were taking place, the United States started looking around in its own neighborhood to see what kind of uh, labor they could replace all of the men who were deployed. They turned to the Bahamas first and uh, realized that they would only be able to get about 6,000 able-bodied men because of those islands were particularly small. Some of the ideas that prompted them to to look locally um, was the Bracera program that had been providing labor in the Southwest. And so between Washington, D.C., the, the political figures, as well as the various lobbyists on the grounds in various industries, especially the agricultural industry, they said, well, we would also like a guest worker um, program, and we could just expand the Bracera program. Their primary concern was assimilation, however. They did not want to recruit uh, workers who didn't speak English because they needed them immediately. They wanted them sent out into the tobacco fields to go, uh, as well as upstate New York and out west and in New Jersey to provide labor to truck farmers, to apple growers, to citrus growers, to sugar growers, and to tobacco growers. And they thought it would be really disruptive if they brought in Mexican um, laborers. And so they came up with this brilliant idea that since the British West Indians speak English, that that would take care of their assimilation problems. They also trafficked in really interesting stereotypes about able-bodied black male labor. Positive stereotypes about how disciplined and hardworking black men were. And so that idea that blacks were independent, that they were disciplined, that they worked hard if they worked for themselves, by the time we get to the 1940s, these kinds of old ideas that held over from the post-emancipation era helped to build support to recruit West Indian laborers specifically. The United States started negotiating with the British government since the islands weren't independent as of yet. And they met with a lot of success because Jamaica, as well as the rest of the world, all of the West Indies, is still in the throes of the impact of the Great Depression. So people come along and say, well, why don't you come work in the States? Yes. Traditionally, immigration has led to high concentrations of ethnic people who arrive in the major metropolitan cities, the New Yorks, the Boston. How did so many West Indians get to Hartford? Well, the West Indian immigration followed similar patterns as, as other major immigrant populations, with New York being the primary destination um, for most West Indian, um, West Indian immigrants. And there are very many service jobs in the service sector in New York that's encouraging this trend and people are able to find a niche in this in the service sector. There's another large population in Florida and the remnants of that harkens back to the history of the US Sugar Corporation. Now did that precede World War II or was that, that one of the outgrowths of Yeah, that definitely preceded. But um, during war, during World War II uh, the Shade Tobacco Growers Association, they they did have West Indian workers during World War II. That's a very big part of agriculture in Connecticut at that time, right? It is a very big part of um, agriculture here, and it's a very boutique 
um, kind of industry because it's used for the cigar wrap. So the first batch of men start coming in around 1943. There's about 8,000 of them in the Northeast and in the, um, in the Midwest. Um, Connecticut gets just a little bit over 1,000, 1,000 workers. That number maybe grows to 1,200, but the overall numbers keep growing. So there's about 8,000 in 1943, that number goes to 17,000 the following year, 22,000, almost 22,000 the year after. And it's working very well and very effectively. Eventually, the men are here for so many seasons that they continue, they, they, they do what any immigrant group does. They start looking around their local neighborhoods to see how can we play cricket? Not even their local neighborhood, the, where they're in the soldiers' barracks and in Bradley Field, where they are, they start playing cricket and dominoes immediately. Eventually, they start heading to Keeney Park to play cricket. And one of the resources that made it very easy for them to settle in Hartford is because the kind of social glue that crickets, cricket creates among men is one of the primary ways that a lot of West Indian organizations um, One begin. of the things you show in your exhibit is just how important cricket, the game, was in both creating the local community and connecting these dispersed communities in other cities. Cricket really becomes a cultural glue. Yes, and so it's not just a cultural glue between um, New York, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. It certainly is, but we also have to remember that West Indians do not have too many opportunities to interact with each other in their various islands, right? It's not as if West is not it's not as if Jamaicans are going to Trinidadian colleges or or vice versa. The United States, Great Britain, Canada provide spaces where people from different West Indian islands are coming together for the for the first time and then are talking to each other about what it means to be West Indian. You know, I was really wondering about that. We talk about people from the West Indies, but it's so many different, both cultures, islands, language groups, that I was wondering whether it really was an appropriately coherent statement in 1943 to say the West Indians are here. Did people think of themselves as West Indians? They thought of themselves as the West Indians because <laughs> the the labor scheme was called the British West Indian, British West Indian labor scheme. All of the official documents referred to them as West Indians, and the local U.S. population, you know, doesn't have time to try to figure out the minutia of who's from Trinidad versus who's who's from Barbados or who's from. Jamaica. And so they just start referring to everybody as West Indians. And um, what some of the interviewees say is that, you know, they don't necessarily have time to correct people that, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Trini, I'm not, I'm not I'm Jamaican. But eventually, though, you do, you can't help but hear the accent. Sure. You know, I can see where, you know, these Connecticans that, that call us West Indians will be West Indians <laughs> if that's what they want. But on the ground for all these people from the different islands, now they're here together working in this space. Did that create tensions among communities, or was it? Whatever tensions were created, rum can fix that, and cricket always fixes that. <laughs> well, 
There it is, the two panaceas. Yeah, rum. I've been Cri- looking for them a long time. <laughs> so cricket, so cricket does provide, cricket does provide that um, glue um, for the men because you know they get to play on the Windies team. They get to play on the West Indies team. It's not the Jamaican team and the Trinidadian um, team. It's the West Indian. It's the West Indian team. So in the same, the same role that cricket is playing in the sports arena in bringing West Indians um, together when they're traveling overseas, it comes to play, it comes to play that same role. And I see it unfolding now. I live in Manchester and there's an abandoned parking lot and I see a lot of the South Asian immigrants coming together and playing cricket on the abandoned really? on the abandoned parking lot, and it immediately brought to mind of yes, I bet this is I bet this is exactly what happened at Bradley Field when the men are there. It's the evening. It's Saturday. It's Sunday. They're looking for their favorite pastime. I suspect men who probably didn't play cricket probably started playing cricket, and then they started looking to. Massachusetts and looking um, to New York, like any immigrant, right? You want to go to Boston, you want to go to New York. And the local community had done a fairly good job. Local organizations like churches and charities had done a really good job of doing outreach to the men. They invited them to come to church. They They helped the men the men formed singing groups that would then travel around to some of the local um, local churches. And so they started meeting folks in Hartford who then told them about Keeney Park and they started playing and some of the African-American population then are the spectators or it's really interesting to kind of see you know what these people are up to. And that's the kernel of the community until about in the late 1940s, right? So they're here in 1943. They're already starting their cricket associations immediately when they get here. They're already making noise with dominoes when they get here. So it's not at all surprising. They follow the pattern that the communities in Florida and the communities before them in New York had already done, which is that sports and other their other leisurely activities becomes a social glue, they try to find a space. They try to find a space for um, to meet. So is cricket still as important in the community today as it was then? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're, if you're a West Indian woman, though, you do have to get used to lo- losing your men, meaning they, you're not going to have their attention if they're cricketers, right? So, because they're going to be gone the entire day on Sunday. Well, and I also get the sense that (laughs) that being good at cricket was a source of real status in the community. If you could play, you were a big person. You were important. I mean, all you have to do is look at the uniforms of the men to think about the kind of status and authority um, that gets conveyed when you wear this white uniform and you're playing this colonial game that eventually the Windies team came to play much better than um, the British the British themselves. And in some way, in if you consider colonialism a form of theater, that you know, the the, the cricket field is where some of that those identities um, get played out. And it, and it's and it's one of the ways that you develop a common a common language. One of the few one of the few spaces where the British are willing to accord respect for um, 
or for, for being just master batsmen and being really great bowlers. Um, in, in some ways, you know, you see problematic discussions about the athleticism of the black men who are playing the sports, sort of the same way you see discussions about Serena Williams's athleticism or um, the various gymnasts' athleticism and how the sport is changing now. And once the sport changed, as long as it's about athleticism, then blacks may have an advantage, right? So you see these interesting stereotypes, again, that are being trafficked in this new context of um, context of sports. But eventually, you know, the Windies teams does come to dominate um, and beat the British. Not now. Not now. I don't know when that's going to happen again. <laughs> so, so is Keeney Park still the primary cricket venue in Hartford? Oh, yes. Ready to go every Sunday. Every Sunday. Cricket ongoing as we speak. That's awesome. <laughs> yes, and it's also being taken up um, with collaboration um, with the West Indian Foundation and the various social clubs with the collaborating with the Police Athletic League to bring cricket to the youth um, in to the youth in Hartford. So it will have a very long legacy um, in Hartford. And what you see in Keeney Park is something also very interesting, which is that um, the South Asian population and the West Indian population are playing cricket um, together, and they're going to their games and trying to like poach. <laughs> <laughs> Coach the Coach ringers, players right? yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, great. to um, to play with them. You know, one of the things I love about this exhibit, and I think it may come out of your experience as an oral historian, is that you really bring to life the stories of people. You weave in the process, the big picture story, but we see it through the eyes of individuals who are telling their own story. This is what happened to me. This is, what are some of these iconic stories that come out of the research you did? I'm glad that you, glad that you mentioned that because as I was trying to figure out what's the best way for me to develop this traveling exhibit, at first I thought of artifacts. It's been very difficult to collect West Indian artifacts. They're very, they're very dispersed, and it would also make it even more difficult and cumbersome um, for the exhibit to travel, and it would create all kinds of security problems. But I am trained as an oral historian, and that, that follows me in my public history work, that follows me in my South African work, and I have always tried as a historian to not speak for people, but to provide a space where people can speak for themselves. And I settled on this idea that the oral histories, the words, people's stories, those are the artifacts, which is why there is so much more text and writing and story in the exhibit than, than what you would conventionally see. Because a lot of these oral histories are 30, 35 single-spaced <laughs> um, stories that has to that have to be distilled down to maybe two pages and then eventually down to 500 not um, easy. 500, <laughs> 500 words. But I tried to give everyone a space to tell me what they thought their story meant and what they wanted to communicate to a particular, um, particular audience. And so I'm finding that people are emphasizing cricket, their particular role as um, foundational members 
at the various social organizations. You asked me earlier, and I think I didn't answer why Hartford and why Connecticut. Um, New York makes sense. It's a magnet for immigrant populations. Hartford has a really dense, or had a really dense network of social organizations. And the West Indian Social Club started in 1950 from the purchase of a two-family house that was renovated to become a clubhouse, as they call it. And they created a bar, a dance floor, and other social spaces in the house. And it's really difficult to have that kind of dense network of Caribbean social organizations in New York. Now, was this founded by these original World War II men who came and they ended up settling here? Yes. Um, so there, there had already been a, a, a community, especially of men, formed around, formed around cricket. They're coming to churches. They're interacting with another group of uh, migrants who are coming here, which is Southern women who are coming up from college for the summer, uh, or their families are emigrating north, and they too were looking for seasonal work in tobacco. And so almost every single one of the early men in the 1940s ended up marrying an African-American um, woman, and that provides the core of the this early is the community core of here. the early West Indian social club, right? It's yes, West, West Indian, Indian men. African-American wives. I was, I was really struck by that. It is a place to confirm your ethnic identity, but there has to be a whole lot of helping to get used to the new society going on. You have African-American women coming from the South who have some sense of how United States culture operates and how you move around in that society. Did it work like that, do you think? I think what makes Hartford so distinct, again, you have people who are in various degrees of being outsiders, right? So the African-American women, they are able to navigate U.S. society in a particular way. They, they understand the sensibilities. You know, West Indians balk at the racist attitudes um, that they experienced. Although they are coming from a colonial system, they are still living in a majority black system where you, you don't have to encounter a lot of white people, especially if you're a small scale, you're a small scale farmer. And African Americans have gotten accustomed to the daily indignities and injustices of racial discrimination and segregation in a way that West Indians have not. But, but at the same time, they're both outsiders in this space, but they have this common labor experience. And for the African-American women who were interviewed for this project, they talked about the hard work of West Indian men, the respect that they have for those men, even as they're doing similarly hard work, the commitment that they had to a family structure and to family values and to settling down and immediately wanting to own their own homes and doing anything, <laughs> anything at all, whether it's work two or three jobs to, to try to, to have a piece, a plot of land um, for themselves so that in addition to being the largest foreign-born population, we shouldn't be surprised that Jamaicans are also among the highest, um, in terms of proportions, um, property owners in Hartford County. Well, it's interesting because you were saying that when the when the guest worker program went to the British West Indies, it was based on this stereotype 
of hard work. And yet, once they're here, you have African-American women from the South saying, you know, these men are really hard-working men. They're, so it begs the question of whether this is a stereotype or whether this is an actual cultural trait. Oh, no, well, stere- I mean, as historians, you, know, I you and I both know that there's some basis in some social reality where stereotypes originate. What is interesting about this farm labor program is that West Indian men very much traffic in those stereotypes and benefit from those stereotypes and are able to not necessarily compartmentalize their um, racial experience, but they have grown up in a majority black island that despite the colonialism, they have a sense of purpose, they have a sense of value, and they are culturally grounded. And when they come here, they are able to look beyond American racial structures and try to find a niche for themselves. And also, they have their foot planted back in their respective islands because everybody wants to own property back home. Everybody wants to build their own homes back home. And there's a sense that they don't have to stay here, right? That they could find, re- they could find refuge back home. What is interesting is that they do both. So my question is around citizenship in this in this period because does the farm labor program provide some kind of like temporary citizenship a visa kind of program how especially when it comes to then property ownership and like so I'm just I'm curious about how citizenship works during this period especially if folks are coming back and forth between the island on the contrary, no. The the Shade Tobacco Growers Association, it, you know, if you don't look at the records, you don't realize just how much they've teamed up with all of these other industries to secure this labor pool. The men are, because they stay here for so long without ever going home and interrupting their residency, they end up being able to claim permanent residency after five years in the U.S. But this is not because the, the, the industries they're working in want them to. It, it's something that happens and eventually, and eventually policies are changed. But there's very much the intent embedded in the contract for these men to go home because their wages are repatriated home, right? Right, And so it's if you want your money, <laughs> you have to... repatriated home by the employers? Or by, by yeah, the, to, the, to the Jamaican government, the Trinidadian government. Right. That's the incentive for them to go back home. These men see this pot of money as that's going to build my house back in Trinidad. Or so they're really making seed money for their return home. At least that's that's why they come. That's why they come. That's what was supposed to make them go back. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're on contract, they're ultimately deportable, vulnerable labor. And they can, and many thousands were, deported. And that's the ultimate weapon that they wield against these men. And right. in, in Connecticut, the men are finding their own ways of settling down and leaving the tobacco industry. But they're leaving the tobacco industry gradually, right? So the you have the owners, shade tobacco owners, providing new opportunities for the men to eventually to eventually settle down. The men are going to night classes, they're going to machinist schools. 
And they're very much aware that this is going on, but they've been able to forge relationships with a lot of the men where the men are also, you know, explaining that they have other family members who are going to be available to work. And so at some point there is this balance between this is a temporary labor pool. We know people are going to seek better opportunities. And those trends really start to develop in the 1960s when the immigration laws become more liberal and there are alternative ways for West Indian men to come here without having to go through the tobacco industry first. But the tobacco industry continues to use this program, this temporary agricultural program, to get workers. It's not on the same scale, but the numbers are still large in the 1960s and the 1970s. They start to taper off um, in the 1990s. Do you have any idea how what the percentage of West Indian temporary workers or guest workers who came over, how many ended up staying? I do not. That is something that my research is trying to um, trying to answer. I'm trying to I'm trying to get to something that I'm calling migrant zero. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like patient You're zero. Right, right. <laughs> and it's been a lot of painstaking work in the phone book in the um, Windsor Historical Society to try to figure out, okay, now we are at 300, and when, when was it 50 people, and when was it 25? Stay tuned. Next, Professor Vernal will tell us about the male-founded social organizations that supported the early West Indian migrants and how women gained equal status in these vital male-centric clubs. And we'll hear some very personal stories about the forms of racism directed against the early West Indian migrants to Connecticut. But first, I want to tell you about a brand new initiative by the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Humanities. It's called Today in Connecticut History. Every day of the year at todayinctshistory.com, we tell you about a fascinating, often little-known event that happened on that very day in the past. TodayInCTHistory.com provides an article, great images, and audio about the event from our daily WNPR broadcast. You can even subscribe to receive a morning email telling you what big event happened in this state on that date. This is your history, and it's worth knowing, and I hope you'll visit TodayInCTHistory.com soon. TodayInCTHistory.com because big things happen in this state on this date. There are a couple of couple of points I, I really want to talk about. One of them is the status of the women in the West Indian Social Club when it was first founded. That was very much a male-centric organization, wasn't it? Yes, it was very much a male-centric organization and, and, and unapologetically so. But they, all of the men who were either founding members or founders of the club, you know, emphasized that you know, their wives were pivotal. They're, they're African-American wives. And then for the ones who did marry, eventually marry West Indian women, that their wives were pivotal in providing um, emotional support and also in giving them the time and the space so that they could go found these organizations that developed as real pillars and community centers and places of social cohesion 
as a space where West Indians could have a voice uh, in the community, but I, I, I certainly won't sugarcoat it by saying that it didn't, it didn't create well, the, a lot of tension. The women became very actively involved right at the founding or shortly thereafter, right? They did, and they incorporated the, incorporated, um, the women in a ladies, um, auxiliary. ladies' auxiliary. And um, eventually incorporated the women. That's not an exclusively West Indian thing to do, no. you know, especially during <laughs> that time period. No. Um, and, I mean, in, you know, in a lot of ways, the West Indian men are following a lot of the, right, a lot of the same gender norms and social, and, and social norms. And they see, in some ways, maybe they see the club as a home away from home of their domestic, their domestic homes, right? It's a space to relax. It's a space to socialize. It's a space to play dominoes. I know that there are women who play dominoes, but, but really the men make it an all-male space. It's a space to go and drink rum. It's a space to get curry goat. Try to find curry goat in Connecticut in 1950 or 1951 to have their own, you know, to have their own food, to have that protected space of cultural heritage. How long did this last? Because it it certainly, it doesn't stay that way forever. No, it doesn't stay that way forever and eventually. (laughs) Going into the 1980s, the women's auxiliary is dissolved and the women are incorporated as full members, but part of the reason that that happens is because the men realize that the women are doing all of the work and they're making all of the money, and it was not going to, <laughs> they were not going to be able to get away with that for much for much right. longer, because the women are planning, you know, they're planning the anniversary balls, they're planning, um, they had a snowflakes and shadows ball where the women <laughs> would get dressed up in um, white, and it you know, they were just all decked out, all classy. It was a very classy place to be. And you're talking about anniversary balls where there are 300 people, right? Wow. 250, 250 people. If you are West Indian, that is the place to be. That is the place is to... the event. That is the place to be seen. But as, as a West Indian woman who has a lot of uncles and a lot of cousins, male cousins, who spend lots of time out of the house... We're very well accustomed to men occupying all male social um, spaces. It's a part of the culture, and it's something that we live with. But the women, you know, they find their niche. Sometimes in these same organizations, you should hear how they go on at the cricket matches, (laughs) right? They're really important spectators at the games, and they really do hold up their men. So if I were to read between the lines here... <laughs> there's, I, I would conclude. I think that there's still a very kind of male-centric West Indian culture, but that women have, uh, women had jockeyed into a very strong position within that culture. Is that fair? Is that that's fair? But as I said, I have a lot of uncles. But remember my grandmother, that yeah. I started off with. Never forget your grandmother. Right. That's, that's there is trouble in a any culture. West Indian woman like that in almost every yeah. family. And so they have their own way of exerting power and authority you in their own way that they make it very clear to the men what is working and what is not what is not working. But as long as the men are employed and taking care um, of the household, the women are willing to go along with this, with this division of labor. I, I think what 
works as a glue between black men and women, whether that's two West Indians or whether that's an African-American man and a West Indian woman or vice versa, is that black women have always worked, right? They've always worked. They've always been in the workplace. They've always had to work to support their families. And when they moved here to the United States, it was no, it was no, no different, different, right? Because there are two things that a West Indian family wants, a West Indian couple wants. They want a house. And they want their kids to be educated. And if they have to work themselves into the ground, if they have to work three jobs to do it, those that's what they count as successful for the next generation. So there are very many families in which, you know, the man is working the day shift and the woman's working the night shift sure. or vice versa. And they just make those sacrifices so that they can send their kids to the best schools because that's what... That's what America is about for these West Indian migrants. I wouldn't have the biography that I have. That's why my mother came here, was sure. so I could end up at a Princeton. I mean, I mean, we didn't know Princeton existed, but we knew we were going to come well, and seek do. out. <laughs> <laughs> seek out whatever the best, um, the best schools were and to study really hard so that we could get a scholarship because they're going to remind us that we don't have no money for PFA school. So, you know, that's, that's sure. part of the motivation, and that's what, that's what keeps people coming here and I think that's why this exhibit is so important because you see different generations of people coming to this country for the very same reason. It's for a better opportunity. It's to make a life for themselves. It's to pursue opportunities that they would have never had in those spaces because of the way that systemic racism is working in the British West Indian Islands to you know, only let in just a few of the good natives and just a few of the um, West Indians into, you know, the upper sure. echelons of, of society. Well, let's talk about the, the reception of these immigrants when they came. You said earlier when we were talking, you said that uh, uh, the community welcomed these West Indian men. They'd hand them over for dinner and things. And, and I, I think if you just hear that side of it, you miss another really important part of the exhibit, which is the kind of racism people encountered here in Connecticut. It, I mean, it was in some of the personal stories that you've captured, there's some really painful stuff going on. It's just unbridled racism. I can think of two really indicative stories. One of them is Mr. Bennett. Mr. Bennett is 93, 93 years old. He is the oldest um, living member of the West Indian Social Club, and he came here in the 1940s um, as well, and eventually you know, was able to move on to own property, own a catering business, and he worked as a um, machinist in the local Hartford County um, area. But when he first moved to Bloomfield, he had bought the house, and I think he was working on the house for about four months before he moved in. And his white neighbor would stop by and come over and talk to him about the fruit trees and tell him what happens during the seasons and what has happened with the previous owner of the house. And chatted him up and was friendly because he thought he was the yard boy or the gardener, right? Oh, yeah. Here's this black man who's coming here, and he's always in his garden. Mr. Bennett is a great gardener still at 93 and finally when the moving truck arrived and the neighbor saw that 
he was the owner. He stopped talking to him. There you go. He's, yeah. You know, he stopped talking to him. Now, eventually, you know, the story does does change. You can't ignore your neighbor. Mr. Bennett is still there. <laughs> He's outlived wow. all of them. But these are, these are the kinds of injustices. Mr. Barnett said that before the West Indian Social Club was created, so this is an, another um, interviewee, he would try to go to some of the local bars and he would sit at the bar and he would order a drink and he would be served reluctantly and then the bartender would break the glass after he was finished. Mm -hmm. And so Mr. Barnett said, all right, well, you know, we're just going to bring more West Indians here so you until you have no more glasses um, in this bar. But you don't always want to have to push back that way. I mean, sure. it's these kinds of experiences that encouraged West Indians to actually want to have their own space, right? So they wanted a home away from home where they didn't have to perform. They didn't have to perform the positive labor stereotype. They could just be who they were. They could curse cricketers and they could curse politicians and they could eat what they wanted um, to eat and and sort of be protected from this, from sort of the wider social world. One of the other stories that struck me was, it was a woman's story, Florence Kaiser Price Wollaston. Yes, Mrs. Wollaston says that she wants all of her names in her panel. Well, good for her. She has many of them, and they are all powerful names. Florence, Kaiser, Price, Wollaston. Yes, ma'am. This was really interesting to me because she described where she lived in Hartford when she came. The housing, when they first got here, was very poor, and it would the Connecticut River would flood. They didn't have heat. They didn't have uh, plumbing. Yes. And what struck me as a historian of this region is that that's that's the way it was for everybody in Hartford but in 1830 or 40 you know not in 1950 yes and Mrs. Wollaston is one uh, Mrs. Wollaston's um, family the Kaisers moved here from the south and so she's one of these African-American women who worked in the tobacco fields, and she talked about the abhorrent conditions um, that blacks were subjected to, you know, essentially slum, slum conditions that they were sub- subjected to. What she provides a window into is when you have Bellevue Square being um, right. developed. She, that, was, that was the point that stood out to me, that here is a project, and we now think of projects, projects. as being such a mistake, mm-hmm. but she lived it. And she said, compared to what we were living in, this was a wonderful thing to actually get into a place that had hot water, to get into a place that had heat. And yes, she talked about having her having her own room um, as well, and and yes, and heat and hot water, and being able to play tennis. And she's she um, schooled me, if not scolded me, <laughs> as a historian to to make sure. That I understand that I emphasize, you know, long after this exhibit is traveling here, there, um, and everywhere, that the way that we see the projects now, the projects that are being raised and torn torn down, um, is not the way that when they were brand new, when it was a a resolution to slum living, that it was it was an urban development urban development project and beautification project that the African American community welcomed. 
And I think that's important to remember. It is, it is very important to remember. I mean, we not all, you know we have great ideas, and some of them have a shelf life of twenty five or twenty five or right. fifty years, right? The, the moving finger runs, and having <laughs> it moves on. To jump to another person, Veronica Airy Wilson, another pretty good name. Now, there's a person who did personally experience over and over again, really kind of a brutal racism directed at a child, right, or at a young person. Yes, I mean, it's now, now it's cool to be Jamaican, right? Uh, everybody's eating, especially in Hartford, everybody's eating Jamaican food, and um, people are obsessed with dreadlocks. See what you've done. <laughs> <laughs> with dreadlocks, right? Everybody wants to be um, a dread, whether it's a lifestyle or a hairstyle. Um, but when the mu oh, the music, right? <laughs> but when people were first, when Jamaicans were first coming here, it 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 was very difficult as a young West Indian person because you stuck out like a sore thumb, right? Your accent. And so you find a lot of West Indians like Veronica, even myself, we didn't want to talk. Um, we didn't want to talk in class. The mm -hmm. kids made, made fun of us. The white kids made fun of us. The African-American kids um, made fun of us. They were mean. They were... And a lot of the African-American kids were some of our biggest bullies, some of our, our worst bullies. Veronica was actually put in classes to get rid of her accent, right? Yes. Veronica, um, so, you know, we weren't like, well, it was the America, the big melting pot. That was the idea. And you all have to melt. Yes. <laughs> and when you're a kid... Um, I mean, like, even Philip Roth talks about this. Nobody, nobody wants, you want to assimilate. You're, when you're a kid, you are not the best carrier of your culture because you just want to be right. and sound and look um, like everybody else and eat the same food, right? Other West Indian kids would say, you know, the teachers who are very well-meaning would say, you know, welcome Byron, the new Jamaican kid in class and try to make him feel good and say, so Byron, what did you eat for breakfast this morning? Because everybody eats breakfast, right? And Byron would say, yeah, man, salt, fish, and banana. And the kids would just ride him to no end. Sure, and Byron sure. never spoke again, right? Right, right? I mean, Byron is not a real person, but he's like the typical <laughs> right. West Indian. But it's uh, unintended consequences of someone who is not sensitive or not understanding, trying to do the right thing and doing the worst thing. Right, when kids are mean. Kids kids everywhere. Every kid is a mean kid, right? <laughs> they are just mean. They're mean to each other, and they're definitely mean um, to immigrants. So Veronica tells that story of being, you know, about speech classes. Another panel that we're doing with Barbara Frankson talks about, you know, she... What brought, sent her... One of the things that sent her to speech classes because she asked her classmate when she was in fourth grade for a rubber, which is what we call erasers. Eraser, sure. And it's like, she can't speak English. You know, my sisters yeah. and I, um, they said that we were from a third world country and we didn't speak um, English and they were going to um, hold us back. Um, when we were, this was in New Jersey, but they ended us. They ended up having to put us ahead um, because of our testing. And so there are all of these um, stereotypes, right? So the positive labor labor stereotypes helps the men, but um, the children, young West Indian children, are having a completely a completely different experience. It's it's a very harsh harsh one that doesn't necessarily make you very proud to be. Um, 
proud to be West Indian. You just you just want to assimilate and hide, and you end up being reticent. Yeah, and then you get your revenge, right? So, then you get into Princeton. <laughs> then you become the deputy mayor. Then you become a motivational speaker, like Barbara Frankson did. So, <laughs> so if you were to summarize how we got from you're, you, you have this strange accent, you can't speak English, we're going to hold you back, to it's cool to be Jamaican. What happened? Music. Oh, well, there it is. It's always music. <laughs> music becomes, everybody loves Bob Marley. And for a really long time, and even now, Bob Marley is like the only reggae artist people can actually name. <laughs> Um, every, you know, Bob Marley is here, there, and everywhere. He's in Africa. He's in the U.S. He's touring. Um, his music comes to symbolize the spirit of liberation, not just sure. for the West Indies in the 1960s, but for Africa as those um, nations are becoming um, independent. And he uses his lyrics to tell stories about history, West Indian history and culture and heritage, and to be completely unapologetic about his dreads, about smoking ganja. Um, and he brings West Indian culture on an international stage um, in a way that I don't, I'm not quite sure if, if anybody else has um, since. So that's one of the things that has happened. I think while you were saying that, I heard a young child in the background singing a Bob Marley song. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, and then, um, but you know, by the 1960s, West Indians are coming here on their own. And whereas in the 1940s and 50s, you have a lot of people, a lot of economic migrants and people who, you know, even when, even if they were doing well or their families were doing very well in Jamaica, they no longer were. But by the 1960s, the economy has rebounded um, and things are much, much better. Um, and you have independence um, coming and you have Jamaica being like really forceful about. Um, its culture and, he and its heritage at getting its independence in 1962. And that's when you have the West Indian Independence um, Parade that starts here that showcases West Indian culture and heritage for Hartford and celebrates West Indian um, independence. And so other stereotypes emerge about West Indians. Oh, they're really smart. Oh, they own, you know, they all own their own, they all want to own their own homes, or a significant proportion of them own their own homes. They're still really hardworking. The children um, are going off to some of the um, best colleges and best schools. The teachers, some of them still need a lot of work, but the teachers start looking past the accents and pushing, um, you know, pushing students so that I could say, I had the horrible Veronica experience when I was in the eighth grade, but by the 11th grade, everybody was trying to figure out how to get me to Princeton, right? Sure. Um, because they, they, they paused and paid attention to me as um, a person and realized that I'm not from a third world <laughs> country and I yeah. actually have a really good, solid British education um, behind me that actually put me grade levels ahead in terms of where I was with reading and math Indeed. in yeah. relation to other, um, other American kids. So at, at least I can say it's a redemptive. So what, what makes this a Connecticut story? How is the history of the West Indian population in Connecticut 
distinct from the larger story of the West Indians in New York or Florida or America? So what I asked myself that um, question because people stay. They put down roots and their children stay. And what makes this a a Connecticut story, as surprising as this might sound, is because of the cultural parity. People are used to having a little plot of land and they're used to farming and having a backyard and having a garden. And it's really difficult to do that in New York. But when people come here, if you think about what your experience is as an immigrant, you come here, you work for a few years, you're finally able to like rent a room, eventually you save enough money to get a house and you own property. And people who own property in Connecticut seem to want to hold on to it, whether you're black or white. So they hold on to their property for themselves, for their next generation. Um, they come to own a lot of multifamily property here. And because of the racism, um, because they're experiencing racial discrimination, there is this impetus to own your own business. And again, once you've set down roots, you own your home, multiple homes, you own your own business, most people are not going to want to um, pull up roots and, and, and migrate someplace else. And so what you see a lot of folks here, they'll get a second home in Florida on top of whatever home they have in Jamaica, but Connecticut becomes home because it's the repository for their memories. It's how they got their it's how they got their start. It's where, you know, they met their wives, it's where they started to have their children. They become longtime, lifetime members of these social organizations that provide a leadership space for them to be presidents, vice president, treasurer, and all of the other administrative roles. As we get a large and well-positioned second-generation West Indian community Mm -hmm. whose children may have been born here and grew up here, are the clubs becoming different? And is is there becoming a kind of cultural gap between the second generation and the newcomers? Yes, I think this is true, right, of the human race, that the next generation always complains. (laughs) 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 That the the other generation are very poor bearers of the culture and the old ways, the ways of the old um, country. So there are two trends that are unfolding with the... um, with the clubs, not necessarily auspicious trends, but in answer to the first part of your question, in the 1950s from the outset, there was a Caribbean American society to acknowledge that there are, you know, the American children of these um, migrants are, you know, they're born here and they see themselves as American. So you get, you, so you get a new club after the, the West Indian Social Club, you get a new club like the Caribbean American Society that is very intentional about their name, naming right. themselves that we're Caribbean American, we're not West Indian. Um, so you do have the second generation coming to terms with what it means to be Caribbean and um, and American, and also moving away from that West Indian term, you know, sort of a thinking, trying to think in post-independence, um, post-independence terms. So, sure. so that is unfolding. They are also looking for African American churches. Local churches have always served as a space to cultivate um, Black leadership, and so, you know, the second generation sees the club, uses sees the club. 
um, and uses the club in that way to develop their and hone their um, leadership skills and also to learn about what it what what is this West Indian heritage of ours. And they were really lucky. So the kids who are coming up, um, you know, the ones who are teenagers in the 1950s and in the 19 in the 1960s, they're they're quite lucky because they get to have both. They get to have the stories about how their how their parents came as well as what the what their various islands were like and what it was like to assimilate in America. But like a lot of other social clubs for other immigrant communities in the United States or even fraternal organizations that served to bond and glue people together, even if you're saying veterans, but VFW, you know, those places are closing. Right, they are. Um, people are finding um, diff- the, the internet has completely shifted the way that young people and the Associate. current generations are associating. Yeah. And so these forms of associational life are falling on hard times. It's not, the, the buildings, some of the buildings are there, but a lot of the buildings have been foreclosed on and have seen better days because the membership numbers have fallen and people don't see why they need to pay membership dues for an organization that they may, they go to have drinks or they go to have a party, but they are not involved in the day-to-day running of the organization. So if you were to put on your wizard hat, now, your, <laughs> your seer hat, and predict the future, what happens? What happens 20 years down the road, a generation from now? I, I hope that it rebounds, but I think um, the kind of political and economics times that we're in certainly suggests that we need these spaces. We need these spaces where people in the community can get together and have a voice because the same kind of outsider status that um, West Indians had in the 1950s that drove them to look for a place of their own is happening to a lot of other people, other groups of people now. And so in the process of doing this work, you know, I say to the social, social clubs, that um, it, it's time for all of us to champion each other's rights and to welcome an, a forum on post-Maria Puerto Rico at the West Indian Social Club, to have a forum on what is happening with English as a Second Language Education at the West Indian Social Club, for all of us to not be so siloed in our various ethnic organizations, but to use these spaces to have these discussions about what's going on and what's unfolding. Do you um, see that happening? Is that... I'm, I, I, I'm on my soapbox. <laughs> I'm on my soapbox. If it's not happening, it will happen. You I'm are on, a force of nature. I'm on my, I'm on my, um, on my soapbox, and I'm also on my soapbox with the, the young people. So one of the ways that we're doing that is to invite young people to the social club to, to see it as their own, right? Because they're not going to drink rum and they're not <laughs> going to serve in the administration and the places are closed during the day. Sure. And so we have to have summer camps there and youth groups there Great and idea. have this, have young people be, oh, that's the social club. Oh, that's where I go to my camp, right? It's not the nightclub. It's not the reggae club. It's not the bar. It's a place for them to have a dance troupe or for them to have a drill team and to have um, a summer camp. But I'm optimistic because this is not 
a West Indian problem. This right. is just, this is something that a lot of social organizations... It's a structural are, problem in world, globally it's a structural right. problem. And, and we need it, we need it more than ever. Hartford, Hartford has changed and um, Hartford Public Schools, um, Hartford Public Schools are having a really difficult time. The children in Hartford Public Schools are having a really um, difficult time making, making the grade and excelling. Um, the West Indian kids in Hartford Public Schools, a lot of them are now having a hard time. It's not like the, um, not like the previous generation. So the, the crises and the needs, whether it's an economic crisis or the political crises, I am very optimistic that it will make us more creative at our problem solving. So that's so for where I see it. For people who want to see this wonderful exhibit, it's going up here at Hartford Public Library this Thursday, be June seventh, seventh, and it's going to be up here till when? It's going to be up here until for Caribbean Heritage Month, and uh, we're going to take it down at the end of Caribbean Heritage Month at the end of June. This exhibit is already, uh, it's already been exhibited in how many places? It's uh, we exhibited it at the Thomas J. Dodd Center um, at UConn, who has been our big, one of our biggest supporters. Um, it has been at Manchester Community College, and it has been at Trinity, um, as well, and now it's coming to um, the Hartford History Center. Well, it's so. wonderful. Everyone, this is this is an exhibit people should really go out of their way to see because it's about a community people should really get to know. It's an, it's an important part of what Connecticut is now. Yes, and I want people to do more than say... I ate jerk chicken, or <laughs> I ate a patty, or I know who Bob Marley is, right? That um, the, the primary way of consuming West Indian culture shouldn't just be food and music. The um, Jamaicans are a significant proportion of the Bloomfield um, population. They're business owners, right? So they're employers, um, they're citizens. They pay a ridiculous amount of taxes in Hartford and in Bloomfield. And so we want to get to know uh, different aspects um, of our culture. So some of the questions we're having about how to get to better numbers of home ownership. Well, maybe we should be talking to West Indians sure. um, about that. Maybe West Indians should be the ones on the panels. <laughs> great idea. Yeah. Right? Telling yeah. people how to get to 50%, 60%, 70% ownership. How to uh, get nine kids into college. Mr. Bennett can tell you how to do that. Excellent. <laughs> so, Perfect. yeah. Thank you, Fiona. Jasmine, thank you. Thank you. This has been just a wonderful interview. You uh, you know and know and know. And <laughs> <laughs> it is a great project. Well, I don't know about Migrant Zero. So if there's anybody who wants to help with that. If Migrant Zero <laughs> is listening to this podcast. Or Descendants of Migrant Zero is listening to this podcast and you have one of those uh, trunks that you came here uh, with, please contact me. And on that, we will turn it over to the airwaves and see if Migrant Zero is listening. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Fiona Vernal, Jasmine Augusto, and Hartford Public Library. To hear more episodes of Grading the Nutmeg, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.com. 
And for more great Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their actions. More at bowman.legal. And Connecticut Humanities. Visit cthumanities.org. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.